Welcome back, everyone, to episode two. Um, this is The S Word, a podcast about suicide prevention. My name is Sarah Kolbeck. I direct the Division of Suicide Prevention at the Comprehensive Injury Center at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And I will let my illustrious co-host introduce himself. <laughs> Hi, I'm Andrew Schramm. I'm a clinical psychologist and a faculty member at Medical College of Wisconsin in the Department of Surgery in the Division of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. Eight. Thanks for well, being um, back. Excited Andrew. for our guest today, Sarah. Yes, me too. Um, I think it's going to be a great episode today. Before we get started, I just have a couple of things I want to mention. First of all, I really want to say thank you to Ian Patterson, who is our podcast's editor. Folks probably are aware that Andrew and I are novices in the <laughs> podcast game. That was probably um, apparent on the first episode. <laughs> but uh, we have a wonderful person helping us with editing, and he also composed our intro and outro music. So thanks, Ian, for doing that. Um, really appreciate your help with this. So today's episode is entitled Suicide in Wisconsin, Data and Statistics for Prevention. And we're going to be talking a lot about data around suicide in our state that hopefully will help folks start to think a little bit more about how this information can be useful in planning suicide prevention strategies. Just as a reminder, we are talking about suicide as part of this discussion today. That can be a difficult topic depending on your experience and kind of your frame of mind for the day. So just a reminder that if you find yourself experiencing some feelings of distress or other feelings, taking a time out for yourself to go for a walk, talk to a friend, listen to some music, just do some meditation, anything that you need for self-care. We'll be here when you are ready to listen again. Taking that time for self-care is so critically important. I also want to mention that there are crisis resources available if you or someone you know um, is really struggling acutely and maybe is having some thoughts of suicide. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is at 1-800-273-8255. You can also use the crisis text line, which is called the Hope Line. All you do is text the word TALK to 741-741, and a trained crisis counselor will be available to text with you. Both those resources are available 24-7, 365 days a year. If you live in the Milwaukee area, you can call the Milwaukee Warm Line at 414-777-4729, and your call will be answered by trained um, Warm Line crisis um, operators. And then finally, if you're outside of the Milwaukee area, but in the state of Wisconsin, you can look for Warm Line information at www.dhs.wisconsin.gov crisis. So today's episode, as I mentioned, is called Suicide in Wisconsin, Data and Statistics for Prevention. And I'm really excited to have our guest here with us today. Our guest is Charlie Veer. Charlie is currently working with us at the Medical College of Wisconsin, but previously worked at the Wisconsin Department of Health Services and was really a key partner in the data report that we're going to be talking about today. So welcome to the podcast, Charlie. Welcome, yeah, Charlie. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Charlie, can you just do a little introduction of yourself? Talk about your current role and your background in suicide prevention work. Yeah, so currently I'm working as a research analyst, as uh, Sarah said, with the Medical College of Wisconsin. My focus has largely shifted from suicide work to homicide and non-fatal shooting work. 
more in the violence area. But uh, previous to this position, I was working as the coordinator for the Wisconsin State Violent Death Reporting System. So that system collected all suicide deaths that happened in the state of Wisconsin. So the position where I was working on this project, so the suicide reports, but now with my work, there's some overlap that occurs. So I do participate in various fatality reviews. Not sure how much folks are familiar with those, but fatality reviews are a more qualitative way to evaluate and view different deaths around the state. So some of those, you know, even if it is homicide death review, often there's cases where partner shoots his you know, loved one and then, you know, shoots himself as well. So there is uh, situations like that. So there's a bit of overlap into suicide work through some of those death reviews, but there is a large overlap just in general among violence, suicide, even overdose. There's quite a bit of overlap between all those areas. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if you hear this in your role as an epidemiologist and a data analyst. I hear this a lot as a suicidologist, like this work must be really heavy and difficult. So I'm curious, what compels you to do this work as an epidemiologist and a data analyst? Yeah, so I mean, I think at the heart of it is you want to make a difference. You want to you want to prove and have a positive impact on the communities that you work for and live in. So I think that's at the heart of it is, you know, trying to make a difference. You know, obviously there is sad components to it. But if you feel that you are making some contribution towards making the issue better, then I think that'll keep you going through most days. So I think that's what I kind of go back to is that, you know, and filling a role with this and hopefully, you know, preventing some some suicides in the state. Great. For sure. And it it sounds like, Charlie, that you are, and we'll talk about like some examples in detail, but really have contributed to kind of the maintenance of these databases and then disseminating the information. So trying to harness the power of data to address these issues from a public health perspective. Am I in the ballpark and kind of in, in the gist of your thinking around that? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, then, you know, the, the part of actually using the data, you know, to inform our prevention programming, you know, it's that's an extremely important part of it. You know, you got to make sure that uh, we kind of know who to target, where to target uh, intervention, and without the data, you don't know any of those things. So, um, so that does kind of fill a void as far as, you know, our understanding and knowledge of, you know, the who, what, where, when of suicide. So for sure. So this is something that I asked our first guest, and I think I'm going to make it a question that we ask everybody. What is one thing that you wish people knew about suicide and suicide prevention? If you have like one takeaway for folks as we get kicked off, what would that be? I think the main thing is that it does have a wide range on who it impacts. So I think that oftentimes people, we were going to talk about, you know, this demographic group or this area of the state that has a higher rate of suicide, you know, later on in this talk. But there's so much nuance that exists between every individual case of suicide. So, you know, you can't really just put people in the buckets and be like, oh, these are the types that are more likely for suicide because it does have a very, a very wide ranging impact on people who experience suicidality and, and, and the like. So I think that's one piece of it is knowing that it does impact a lot of people, different economic levels, different areas, different races, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think that really should form our approach to when we are navigating the world and going around and meeting people and doing new things. You know, I think we really, really need an approach that's empathetic and knowing that we don't always know what's going on in people's heads. You know, we don't really know what's going on in people's personal lives. So kind of having that approach with, with everyone we meet, you know, we all play a role in suicide prevention. And I think that having an empathetic feel for when you go around the world and meet people and have your impact on different systems and and programs that you are taking that into consideration. It sounds like in part, Charlie, that you're acknowledging like the limitations of the data and the need to keep it at the individual level in some ways, mm-hmm. which I, I wouldn't have guessed coming from the epidemiologist in you, you know? 
Can you say more about that aspect of it? Like you're trying to balance kind of the power of this data with also needing to take an individual level analysis, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, I think as public health professionals, we can provide all the data, we can provide all the resources to hotlines, to prevention programs, to access to services. But I think just a large proportion of the prevention work, I think, happens on a, on a one-on-one basis. You know, it's that talk you had with a friend. It's that, uh, you know, that, you know, the walk, you know, you stopped by and saw someone that you hadn't seen in a while and that kind of changed your day around. So I think a lot of that actual prevention does occur on that individual basis where we provide the high-level metrics. So you can describe these things a bit more clear. But I do believe that a lot of this on the foot, I mean, on the ground prevention work does just happen between individuals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Drop the mic. You know, I love that. Yes. (laughs) Because there's a tension there that I feel like you're naming that's really important for people to remember that we have these percentages and stuff we're going to talk about. But at the end of the day, we have these one-on-one opportunities to make a difference as well. So I love that. When I think about prevention and not just prevention can be a tricky word for people, especially survivors of suicide loss, that can be a very tricky word. But I think about how love is at the center of it, that it's really about love in our interpersonal relationships, love in our policies and love in our systems that is really critical to suicide prevention. And I really appreciate you both bringing that forward. I needed to hear that this afternoon. So thank you. For sure. Yeah. So the report that we're going to talk about today in our episode, as I mentioned, Charlie really was one of the very integral people in getting the data analyzed and getting this really wonderful, useful report published. The report that I'm talking about is called Suicide in Wisconsin, Impact and Response. And this uh, report will be linked on SoundCloud uh, where folks are able to listen to this podcast. (laughs) Those of you who can't, you can't see if you're listening, but Andrew's holding up the, the report right now. Uh, This report was published in 2021 and was the culmination of many, many years of effort, as Charlie can certainly attest to. And the report really builds off some previous reports that were published back in 2011 and 2014 called the Burden of Suicide in Wisconsin Reports. And these reports really have detailed information and data about the incidence of suicide in our state. And the new thing about this report is that it pulls in the state suicide prevention strategy. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in this episode. But Charlie, could you just talk to us a little bit about your role specifically in developing this report? Yeah, so I was the data lead on the project. So all the data-related activities that go into building reports uh, was driven by myself and, and a team of other analysts. So that included everything with, you know, working with partners to identify which data exists that we could use pulling for the report, anything related to suicide or, you know, self-harm attempts, suicide attempts, suicide ideology, that type of stuff. So trying to identify databases within the Wisconsin Department of Health Services, as well as externally looking at other organizations who collect data as well. So that was the first piece was identifying data sources. Uh, From there, it's, you know, getting the data into our systems and then able to actually clean the data, analyze the data, build your infographics with it, you know, so your charts, your tables, all that stuff. So a lot of those pieces uh, was, was done by myself. And then the, the final step is kind of interpreting the data and then contextualizing the data for folks to read and to better understand what they're looking at. A lot of those activities were driven by myself and a team of analysts as well. So, Great. As we get started talking about the report, Sarah and Charlie, we should like shout out major stakeholders or organizations that were involved in making this happen. That just sounds like a lot of work, <laughs> all those processes. So I'm curious who else we need to shout out. Yeah, I think Prevent Suicide Wisconsin for sure. You know, the Wisconsin Department of Health Services, absolutely. 
the Comprehensive Injury Center at MCW at the Medical College of Wisconsin definitely had a role in helping with putting this report together. Are we missing anybody, Charlie? I feel like those are our big partners. Yeah, those are the main agencies. Obviously, we got a lot of feedback from external agencies, anyone working in suicide prevention around the state, where there's opportunities for them to, to provide feedback. There's also cross-divisional collaborations within the Wisconsin Department of Health Services that typically didn't occur prior to this report. So our Division of Care and Treatment Services and our Division of Public Health teamed up on this report. So there's some cross-divisional collaborations as well. So Mental Health America too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mental Health America is the agency that leads the work of Prevent Suicide Wisconsin for sure. So Charlie, when we're thinking about the report as a whole, what do you think are the three top data points from this report that are most important for Wisconsinites to know about suicide in our state? Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's obviously a lot of really important data. That's why we included as much data as we did in the report, you know, as we did. Uh, so I, I like to say that all the data is extremely important. But if I did have to choose three specific metrics from the reports, the three I would say what the number one is the alcohol. 34% of suicides have alcohol present in their toxicology. So that's close to a third of all suicides had alcohol present, knowing you're from Wisconsin and uh, so are you, Andrew. Um, that's a uh, that here uh, there's quite a bit of drinking and there can actually be somewhat of a protective effect. And for, for some folks who kind of have a community built around going to the taverns on Sundays and watching the Packers game. So there is some of that that can be protective, but for a lot of individuals and, you know, people who are struggling with mental health, the combination of alcohol, declining mental health can actually be pretty detrimental to outcomes like suicide and other health outcomes as well. So I think pretty large proportion of suicide deaths that had alcohol present is definitely an important metric that was included. The other one is firearms. Almost 50% of suicide deaths occurred with a firearm. Another thing that's pretty um, uniquely Wisconsin, we do have a lot of firearm owners here in the state. Policy is pretty limited as far as restricting access to firearms by individuals. So that is another, I think, important metric of the reports. And then the last one is rural areas. So again, Wisconsin is extremely rural. If you drive too far outside of Madison, Milwaukee, you're kind of back in a farmland. So a big, big chunk of this state is back rural. So we did find a higher rate of suicide among our rural counties here in Wisconsin. And I do want to kind of put out some clarification on that. I think that the, the way we did the analysis there was by a county level. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. even within counties, there's quite a bit of variability. So Madison, you drive 20 minutes outside Madison, you're still in Dane County, but it's, you know, you're back in a kind of rural farmland. So I think that that discrepancy would actually be even larger if we would have looked at it on a municipality level. So if we're looking at city by city, I think that that difference would actually be even higher. But since we did at a county level, there still is a difference there, not quite as large as you'd see, you know, if you looked at it by city to city. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, good, good chunk of the state is rural. So I think that's also another thing to, for prevention folks, folks to focus on. Great. So if you did have that more granular data, like the city level, would you predict that the more rural cities would have higher rates relative to the population? Yeah, yeah, I would, I would predict that that difference would be even higher. Because, yeah, if you look at the map, we have the map color-coded according to what we described as rural versus urban. And so you'll see like Marathon County, you know, it's considered an urban slash suburban county because there is a fairly large city there and it's it was based on a county level. So a lot of people live in Marathon County probably would not agree with that. You know, they would say that feels pretty rural here to me, you know. So when you do get that more granular, yeah, look at it, I think that you would probably see even, even a more pronounced difference there. Okay. And I heard some controversy recently on NPR. They were talking about differences in how rural or versus urban is defined. 
I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm curious what approach we use in this report. Yeah, so it wasn't uh, any reinventing of the wheel for us. We basically just used the federal classification, the urban rural classification. There's technically a suburban classification, and we combined suburban with the urban. So that was one thing that we did on our own. But other than that, it was basically pulled directly from federal a federal database that shows county by county, which, which is considered suburban, urban, or rural. And I believe they based that on the low, how, how far away it is from a major urban area, as well as the, the actual uh, per capita density of people. So um, I know there's a few metrics that go into how they calculate that, but um, it was mostly pulled directly from the federal database. Cool. Thanks. I was just thinking that only on NPR would something like that be a big controversy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think it's interesting, but the the data nerds love that stuff. So that's great. (laughs) Well, I mean, they were talking about, I think it's relevant, you know, talking about how there are maybe counties where they're deemed suburban, but the culture and like the resource availability and stuff like that qualitatively feels rural in like ways that those counties then don't have access to grants for like infrastructure and so on in rural Mm -hmm. counties. So Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's definitely relevant. And this ties a little bit into the next question about kind of that urban rural divide in terms of suicide in Wisconsin. You know, and this is something that I know, Andrew, you and I have talked about a lot, particularly living in Milwaukee and focusing a lot on suicides in urban settings. I'm also working on studies related to farmer suicide, which is obviously very different. And as you mentioned, Charlie, the report highlighted suicide rates are higher in less populated counties. Do you have any sort of explanation or reason why that might be the case? You know, from data included in the suicide report, we did include a map that shows the density of mental health and substance use providers to number of people who live in that county. And so you typically see in the more rural counties a less, you know, less mental health and substance use service providers per person kind of points towards, you know, maybe there's less access to services for specific individuals in these rural counties. So mm-hmm. I think that could be part of it. I, you know, speaking from personal experience, I grew up in a very rural area in Michigan, um, not all too different from Wisconsin, but I have uh, siblings that are quite a bit older than me. They graduated from high school in the early 90s. So back in those days, they uh, they were able with the high school degree to graduate from high school to work in one of the local factories. And they you know, were able to buy a house, have their family of three. Things are pretty well taken care of. So there was a, quite a bit of economic opportunity as far as uh, you know being able to do that uh, is concerned. So I think that's changed quite a bit since then. My generation, that's really not an option for kids to graduate from high school and then go straight into you know factory work to support a family. A lot of friends that are my age who, who are working in, in factories back home or and still living with their parents, you know, still pretty low social economic status. Um, so I think that there has been a kind of depletion of economic mobility and opportunity in these rural areas. And so I think that definitely feeds into what we're seeing in the data. Um, and again, this is from my personal experience, just what I've seen growing up. But uh, you know, moving here to Wisconsin, it's very similar. Instead of factories, it's farms. And there's, I'm sure, still a bunch of factories and places too. But there's a similar pressure on the farming industry of farms getting bought out by some of the bigger players because they're the third generation to own this farm and can't keep it afloat with all the competing expenses. So, right. so I think that's a, a very similar thing here in Wisconsin, where these rural areas have just seen um, it's trickier to have that same economic opportunity. So. 
Yeah, I love how you're speaking into these systems level factors. Um, when we think about prevention, I think a lot of times the tendency is to think about that on an individual level. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to remember that individual level prevention strategies certainly are important, but we need to be looking at systems as well. Those systems mm-hmm. drive a lot of individual behavior. So thanks for speaking yeah. into that. Sarah, can you, for folks that aren't familiar with kind of that terminology or Charlie of individual versus systems level, what are you talking about? Like what would an individual level prevention strategy be? An individual level. And I'm laughing because I knew you were going to ask me this question. You knew I was going to ask? I did. Oh, yes. Oh, as soon as you awesome. started. It's fine. We've been working together a while. Yeah. Um, Individual level strategies and Charlie jump in are would be things like the QPR trainings, the question, persuade, refer trainings that we see where an individual maybe is identifying a concern in another person and then is intervening or is helping that person maybe find um, mental health care or other care. Training and education tend to be a little bit more individual. You know, therapy is an individual mm-hmm. level intervention, medication. Systems level interventions would be things like policy change, things that affect organizations, policy level intervention, maybe at a school would be like implementing universal screening for suicide risk that would impact all students within a school setting. So more upstream and again, more tendency to impact individual behaviors. Awesome. Thank you. That was really valuable information, I think. So I'm uh, <laughs> sorry that I'm uh, I'm beating a dead horse by asking nope. you. <laughs> no, you're just retesting me for my, my degree in public health. It's fine. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, thanks for that, Charlie. I, I appreciate it. You know, I think one of the other things that's so useful about this report is that it doesn't limit its focus on death by suicide. There's a graphic in the report that highlights that when we're thinking about data around suicide, Death by suicides really represents the tip of the iceberg. What does that mean when we're thinking about data around suicidal behavior? Yeah, so suicide is really the endpoint in a continuum of suicidality. So that usually begins with suicidal ideation, uh, thoughts of suicide. Not everyone who thinks about suicide is then going to attempt suicide or or self-harm or anything like that. So the idea is you're going to have a smaller proportion of those people who then attempt suicide. And then other people who attempt suicide, some of those will result in a fatality. So that's a death by suicide. Of the suicide attempts, again, that there's going to be less people who actually die by suicide. So it's uh, best to think of this thing in a continuum. You know, people don't, they're not just suicidal one day. It kind of starts with, you know, ideation, plans, attempts, and then, you know, eventually uh, suicide if it gets to that point. But I think sometimes we just look at the end point, but it's good to include all the previous uh, pieces. So, yeah, so important, like you said, to consider kind of that spectrum. And I think when we're talking about prevention, thinking about how can we get people to not get to that point of, mm-hmm. you know, attempting, how do we identify folks who are at risk sooner? So that's really helpful. The other thing that I thought was really interesting about this report, and I really appreciated, was that there were some specific highlights around data that is reflective of suicide in a couple of different groups, specifically veterans, youth, and folks that are LGBTQ. Charlie, what was the reason for the focus on these three groups as part of this report? Um, So yeah, this came out of a series of meetings with multiple partners asking for feedback on what we're calling, you know, population spotlights is just, uh, you know, a focus group to do a deeper dive in some of the data on. And so this is what came back from a lot of those meetings. These are the groups that folks 
felt that should be included, you know, having special attention put towards, towards these groups, you know, for each one of these groups, they had their own set of unique risk factors, you know, that might vary from the general population. So that's another reason for pulling these out separately, you know, for veterans, most people are aware there's, there's a higher rate of suicide among veterans. A lot of people returning from overseas have PTSD or other mental health, you know, other issues that come along with that type of work. So that was one of the reasons for including veterans. When you look at youth suicide, you you compare them to other groups, they actually don't make up the highest rates of suicide. But if you look at it proportionally to what's killing youth, I I think it's the second leading cause of death for youth. So that's that's the reason we included them, because they can kind of get missed if you don't focus on them specifically, because they do have a fairly small suicide rate compared to middle-aged folks. So that's why we included youth, LGBTQ portion of it. We do know that from some of our survey data on ideology that youth LGBTQ do sometimes show up as higher rates of suicide ideation attempts, that type of thing for for the younger LGBTQ. Another reason why I didn't include them is because it is a population that we're lacking data on. So that is one of the challenges with this report is pretty difficult. Those aren't standardly collected on our death records. So sexual orientation, uh, gender identity, those aren't typically collected. We have added those into the Wisconsin Violent Death Reporting System. But yeah, it's still fairly inconsistent across county to county and how well that's collected. Um, so we also want to just call it a highlight to that, that, you know, here's a, here's a, you know, population uh, that we are lacking some data on. So we wanted to call attention to that, try to have some people working on that issue to improve our surveillance of folks identifying as LGBTQ. Right. Yeah. And I think that's an important issue of health equity, too, is, you know, it's hard to bring attention to an issue if there's not good data around it. Dr. Hargarten, who's our next guest on our next episode, always has told me that advocacy is data plus a story. And so having data is critically important. And it's it's really encouraging to hear that Wisconsin is starting to collect this information on things like sexual orientation and other social determinants of health that will help guide policies and and prevention activities. But I think it's an important consideration for us to keep in mind as we're thinking about suicide in Wisconsin is that the data that we have might not be necessarily reflective of everything that's happening, as we've said. So thanks for calling that out. What's the story part of that? He said the data, the data plus, plus the story. The story. Yeah. Maybe we can a, ask Dr. Hargarten next time too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. From from and maybe he'll even have that sort of story for us in our next episode on um, firearm suicide. It's really that compelling story that kind of tugs at people's heartstrings a little bit, gets people emotionally invested in an issue. So yeah, we can talk about that in the future. Yeah, but we, that would we, be a well, good topic. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Charlie. Oh yeah, so, yeah. There's kind of an example of that in the report. So we yeah. do have voices from the field, you know, to accompany some of the data that we're including. So it, it's easy to kind of get lost in the aggregate counts of these incidents. So you're just going to read numbers, and we have some callouts where it actually has quotes from people who are either working in suicide prevention or people with lived experience. So it's a way to kind of connect that back to the person level. You know, that here's a bunch of data, but here's what that actually looks like on a person level. So right. yeah, that's great. Awesome. So as I mentioned earlier, one of the other really great components or, or features of this report is that it details the Wisconsin state suicide prevention strategies. So not only do you have the data, but you also have really wonderful, strong recommendations for prevention. We're going to talk about the state strategy in various components and pieces over the next several episodes. But I just want to call out, since we're talking to an epidemiologist, that one of the strategies within the strategy is around data and surveillance, and specifically this strategy aims to improve surveillance of suicide and evaluation of prevention programs. 
And so we've kind of talked about this already, Charlie, but from your standpoint, why is this strategy so important to prevention? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you only know as much as the data you're collecting. So that can definitely be a limitation here in Wisconsin. There is really no standard collection form or database for collecting information on suicide deaths. It can really vary county to county. So if you ask 10 different offices, how do you investigate a suicide death? You're probably gonna get 10 different responses. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's extremely important that we try to standardize what information is collected by identifying what's pertinent information for prevention purposes, trying to have a little bit more procedures and standardization around the investigation process and you know, like what information is collected. I think that the fact that we just have quite varying data county to county, it really impacts the data as far as being able to generalize across the state, you know, mm-hmm. because one county, you, they might have spent, you know, five hours interviewing family members, friends, types, that type of stuff for previous mental health issues, uh, risk factors. And then some other counties might kind of just show up that night. And if no one's around, then it's, it's a suicide death and it gets put in the books that way. So, yeah, I think that uh, having some standardization around suicide deaths is, is, Extremely important. And especially with the increase in unintentional and overdose deaths, I think another thing for people to realize is that it's extremely difficult to identify if an overdose was intentional versus unintentional. So I think some kind of standardization around that would also be good because I think there, and there's already been talks about this, is that a lot of potentially suicide deaths are being counted as unintentional overdose deaths. And I've spoke with various coroner's medical examiners about this. And sometimes it's if a suicide note is present, then they'll call it a suicide death if it's a poisoning. Sometimes they'll not even if there is a suicide note because they can't tell if it's been written that day. Again, it just varies quite substantially across from county to county across the state. So I think it's just good to understand that these are very tricky things to collect information on. A lot of people don't tell people, you know, their intent for suicide or you know some of the risk factors that have been bothering them. So anything that can get us a little more consistent information and more robust information, I think would be useful for using that information to yeah, perform data analysis and then inform our programs. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So what's a way that we could get more standardization around this type of data collection at the state level? Um, so there's a, there's a couple of different ways. I think one would be through some type of standardized reporting system for corners of medical examiners. So if there was a database that was set up that had fields that needed to be filled in, then there'd be more awareness. And from the medical examiner corner community that this is the information we're supposed to be collecting for these types of deaths. So that would that would help that. And then also if you require that information to be submitted, then yeah, you could generalize across the state better knowing that all these different counties are looking at these various risk factors and, and of the sort. So so that's one piece that could improve reporting. I think that just the training of our coroners and medical examiners here in Wisconsin, again, it's kind of a unique thing here in the state that we, there's some, we're a mixed state. So some counties are coroner systems, which is an election-based system versus medical examiners, which is an appointed position. There's typically a little stronger requirements for the background of a medical examiner. But again, most of the, most of the counties have great the coroner medical examiner offices across the state, but it does vary a bit. So I think that if there was some training with our coroner medical examiner community around psychological autopsies or something that would get more specifically at how to investigate suicide deaths, I think um, could be useful as well. Great. I want to plug, um, you know, for anyone interested in learning more about that psychological autopsies procedure published by the American Association of Suicidology, a really powerful tool for getting some more in-depth and kind of comprehensive information about the circumstances around a suicide death. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. 
So I just want to talk for a few minutes about some of the challenges that were faced in putting together this really comprehensive report. As I mentioned earlier in the show, this report was released in September of 2020, but the report itself actually covers data from 2013 through 2017. So there's about a three-year period of lag in there between when the data was finalized and when the report was released. And I'm wondering, you know, I think this is a pretty common issue with public health and data, but could you talk a little bit about why there's such a big lag in surveillance data around this important issue? Yeah, so I think the best way to is just to describe the process for what that actually looks like. Our death record system is a little bit more up to date than the Wisconsin Violent Death Reporting System. The Wisconsin Violent Death Reporting System is part of a federally funded program that uh, funds all 50 states and a few of the territories as well, I believe. So um, to collect this data and part of CDC's timeline is how it works is for a full year, we get a year and four months after that data year to collect the coroner medical exam report, the law enforcement reports, and then input that data into the system. Then it gets sent to CDC, who then they do their data checks on it and send it back to us at the state health department to then perform our analytics on. Um, so there is a bit of a lag. And the reason for that is, is a lot of times these deaths are depending investigations. So the you know, law enforcement might not be willing to release records until, you know, it's been determined that it was a suicide, not a homicide, for example. So that's part of the lag there is giving time for the systems to, to you know, get their documentation ready. And it's also very labor intensive to do manual abstraction of these records into a database. So I know in Wisconsin, I think we just crossed over a thousand incidents. So it's like, I think it's over well over a thousand incidents now, violent deaths, that is, so that's homicide, suicides, undetermined deaths that need to get information collected and then abstracted into the data system. So those steps are pretty rate limiting, you know, it's going to slow things down. And then again, just being a statewide data system, it's, it's just takes a little longer to collect yeah. that many cases. So. Right. And I think the for those folks that aren't aware, or maybe haven't used the violent death reporting system, as Charlie said, it's a national database. And there's really pretty robust information included around the circumstances that were sort of present in the lives of folks that died by suicide and other types of violent death data that you don't typically get in a death certificate or in other ways. And so I guess maybe the trade-off is, you know, you have this really robust data, it just takes a bit longer to get. So, and I think there are, there are certainly trends that shift and change around suicide. I know there's been a lot of discussion around the impact of COVID-19 on suicide, and we won't likely see those play out in the data for another couple of years. But just knowing that even though the data are a little bit lagged, um, they're still helpful in thinking about kind of broader population level prevention strategies for sure. Mm-hmm. And when you were pulling together the report, Charlie, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced in doing that? Um, so, yeah, this was my first time putting together reports of this size as far as being like the data lead on it. So it was a lot of new learning and <laughs> all that uh, to, uh, over the process. But I think suicide prevention, there's a lot of people working in that space across the states. So trying to just incorporate all those voices for the field, from the field and, you know, kind of getting those included in the report of everything that was deemed important, you know, you eventually start running out of pages and space and those are all dollars and cents to, to get these things printed off. So I think it was tricky trying to balance out what was deemed more priority versus, you know, stuff that we could do in a later report. So I think that was a tricky piece to it was trying to identify what information to include 
is also, again, working across multiple partners. There's just, especially within the division of public health and division of care and treatment services, there's, you know, those are separate divisions at the Department of Health Services. So there was a bit of trickiness that came with uh, working through approval processes on two different division levels. Also connecting the data back to the prevention pieces. Again, like I said, like a lot of this stuff is pretty macro, high level data analytics. So, you know, trying to draw this specifically, you know, into a, a prevention program recommendation proved to actually be pretty, pretty difficult. So, yeah, for sure. I just have a couple more questions just to kind of round out this discussion today, Charlie. You know, we have robust data around circumstances, methods, location, really, really good information for prevention. But we also have some unanswered questions. And I just want you maybe to think about and tell us what some of those unanswered questions might be and how that can impact prevention, particularly among folks that are marginalized. There's a number of ways, I think, to improve our information on suicide deaths. One of the main pieces, I think, is so with the violent death reporting system, a lot of that information is collected from people reporting it. So it's not actually linked back to medical records or hospitalizations or prescription records. So that's a piece where the infrastructure does exist, where we do have these data systems that sit within our state health departments. There's potential to link across these systems. So I think that would provide a lot of additional information as well as more certainty around specific metrics. Because one of the questions is, is there a previous mental health issue? You know, and so that's usually being obtained by just asking people, you know, who are at the scene or family members, that type of thing, versus being able to actually look at prescription records or hospitalizations for mental health reason. You know, like that just provides another layer of additional information and, you know, can kind of confirm some of the things that have been reported. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, there's information that's not captured there that you can't capture from, you know, interviews and reports from family members and friends. But I think that's one piece that could be pulled in to help improve this database. As far as like specific metrics, I think a lot of it is lacking like financial data. We don't really collect too much of that. So I think that would be another important metric that could be included as far as more social economic status markers for these folks. And we already mentioned this before, but, you know, working with some of those more behavioral classifications of people. So, you know, LGBT as well as, uh, you know, gender identity as well. So I think uh, trying to improve surveillance around some of those is also really important to, you know, better identify suicide and, and those among those populations. So, yeah, those are really wonderful suggestions. And I was going to ask you, you know, kind of a final question, you know, what are some of the suggestions that you would make for improving our understanding of suicide in Wisconsin? And I think you've touched on a lot of those, but just curious if there are any other kind of broad suggestions that you would make from your perspective as someone that's worked closely with this data. I know I mentioned psychological autopsies, you know, I think that's something that's kind of a new evolving field has shown to have some promise as far as improving capture of information and Mm -hmm. additional information around suicide deaths. Also mentioned the standardized data system, you know, so trying to make sure that what's being reported is consistent across all of our counties. But I think another part of that too is on the dissemination piece. So making sure that we are more consistently getting this data out to folks who then can become more aware of what's happening in the state. You know, as you mentioned, this report had the data is a couple years old. And again, it is still useful. Data doesn't change if you bump up the years to more recent years, it's going to stay pretty similar. But I think, you know, another piece is really on that dissemination. So um, Mm -hmm. improving our dissemination of information that helps to build awareness you know, there's some political office that's in place that cares about suicide for four years and then someone else comes in and it kind of gets pushed to the side. So trying to find a way to make sure that suicide does stay front and center and, uh, you know, on people's radars is, I think, also really important. Yeah. Yeah, those are great recommendations. Thanks, Charlie. 
as we wrap up for today, that like keeping with what you said, Charlie, about keeping suicide front and center, I just want to kind of summarize today. Like we had this opportunity to hear from Charlie. Thank you for being here. I think suicide prevention takes a village. Sometimes people might think about it involving like mental health professionals or a lot of different kind of areas of expertise. I think today we heard about the power of epidemiology and public health experts mm-hmm. to use data to um, inform prevention efforts. And I can say like, as someone that's met with many policymakers to ask for money uh, for suicide prevention <laughs> and to ask for policy that will help with suicide prevention, that I think like every legislator asks for like data like this. And so uh, the stakeholders and decision makers around these policies uh, care about this. And I just want to drive that home. So thanks again, Charlie. Sarah, do you want to give us a, kind of a preview of what's to come here? You mentioned Dr. Hargarten. Yes. Yeah. I am really excited about our March episode. We are going to be talking a little bit more about firearm suicide prevention. As Charlie mentioned, about half of folks in Wisconsin who die by suicide use a firearm. And that percentage is actually higher among veterans and among folks living in rural settings and farmers and other groups. Obviously, this is a topic that's charged in a lot of ways, politically charged. It's fraught with controversy, but we're going to break it down and talk about firearms suicide prevention, really from a public health science-based perspective. Dr. Hargarten is an international leader in this field. He's also my mentor, so I'm really excited to have him speak with us for our next episode. Charlie, again, thank you so much for your time been parting. I want to remind folks that the data around suicide that we see in reports like this and in other reports is, is one part of the story. It's a really important part of the story. Other parts of the story reside with folks who have experienced suicide in some way, whether they are a lost survivor or an attempt survivor or someone who lives with suicidal thoughts. And these stories are as important as the surveillance data that we discussed today. And in upcoming episodes, we'll explore lived and living experience of suicide in Wisconsin in more detail. But again, just really appreciate you, Charlie, for bringing in this important perspective today. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. And just a reminder of any crisis lines that you might need to access, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255, the crisis text line, text talk to 741-741. And just a reminder, after you listen to this episode today to do something good for yourself, I know I am going to go look at some sunshine and pet my dogs and uh, take a deep breath. Um, Just a reminder to take that moment of self-care. Andrew, I hope you get a chance to do the same. Thank you. Yes. Yes. I will. Yes. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, we'll talk Talk in March. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Andrew. Okay. Bye-bye.